It's been nearly a quarter century since the way Ohio funds its schools has been deemed unconstitutional, and since then, not much has changed. But that may all change soon if a new plan gains traction by the end of the year. With me today is State Representative John Patterson, who is one of the architects of what's known as the Fair Funding Plan. Thank you for being with us today, Representative. Great to be with you and to my dear friends in the Valley. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I guess let's just start with explaining this because this is a little complicated. Can you explain the Fair Funding Plan and how it works? You have about four hours. <laughs> <laughs> Cliff notes. <laughs> okay, let me give you the highlights and let me tell you why this meets the holdings of the Deralt decisions, the four Deralt decisions. Fair enough. Yeah. So let's get into, get into some of the background. First of all, one of the holdings of the decision was the fact that the state never arrived at the base cost. And by that, I mean, what does it cost to educate a typical student? inside the classroom and all the supports that go with that, let alone the other add-ons, if a student is special ed or gifted or English language learner, what this formula does is to arrive at the base cost for educating a typical student. So we have direct instru instructional supports for students, that would be uh, the teachers, that would be, and within that, uh, for example, the by research and by best practice, the per pupil teacher ratio is all factored into this. So we have in kindergarten funding for one teacher for 20 students. In grades one, the, the lower elementary, uh, 23 to one. Middle school, 25 to one. And high school, 27 to one. Plus we've added into that minimum standards for health, phys ed, and music, both in the elementary and at the high school. So that's part of the base cost. That's 60%, that's the base uh, of this funding plan. And then we add in the indirect uh, student costs or the supplemental, uh, sports, school resource officers, librarians, uh, nurses, mental health counselors. That constitutes another funding stream or another funding cost within the whole formula. And then there are the building costs. You need a, a principal, you need a, a, a secretary, you need the janitors, you need to be able to uh, uh, maintain the building. There's a square footage formula embedded in the formula. And then there's a district-wide, a superintendent, a treasurer, EMIS coordinator. All of that is costed out so that we know where we're starting from. So that's the first building block of this critically important component. So once we arrive at that, per district, and it's unique to a district because, for example, a district might have a younger student population, thus needing more teachers, mm -hmm. and a neighboring district might have a more mature student population needing less teachers. You could have two districts side by side with the same student population, but with a different base cost. Why do I mention that? Because this is surgically precise per district. Currently, we just use 60-20 as a base cost statewide without any idea how that was arrived at. This is transparent, and it's absolutely predictable. So once we arrive at the base cost, then we need to go to the next con building block here. What is the fair share for the local district to pay, and what is the fair share for the state to pay, correct? Sure. 
So let me try to simplify this. Another holding in the Duralt decision was the fact that we have an over-reliance on using property wealth to determine the local wealth of a district. Mm -hmm. And sometimes there could be property wealth, but those living in that district, there could be large uh, factories, there could be power plants, but the people living there may not have a lot of wealth. And they're still paying taxes, all right? So the idea here is to blend property wealth with income wealth to arrive at a strategically and surgically precise measure of what the local capacity is to raise their own income. So, for instance, a district like Youngstown, where there is obviously a much poorer population than some of the outlying suburbs, they would presumably pay less but not have the district suffer as a result. That's right. That's the concept, precisely. So that uh, a a district with less local means to raise revenue would then get additional help from the state. And we can justify that because we know what the base cost is. There's that component again. The base cost is for educating the kids in Youngstown. Now, is the idea essentially that each district determines their long-term needs and submits a request to the state? Is that how that's budgeted for? Oh, no, no, no. The state would, let's go back to local district. The local districts know how many students they have in any classroom at any time. And so then we fund according to the number of students. And there's, it really gets complex here in the base cost, but it's tailor-made for each district. So if we know what that district's cost is, and then now let's go back to what's called the distribution, where I was going with income wealth and property wealth. Mm -hmm. There's a very complex calculation used there to arrive at, and I'm just going to give you a number here, total local capacity. Whatever dollar amount that is, you take the cost for those kids, and then you subtract from that what the local district ought to be able to pay and the state fills in the rest. So in super simple terms, a district with less wealth concentrated in it might get more state funding and come up with less and a district that can afford to pay more might get less state funding, but they can afford to pay more. Is that correct? That's it. That's it. That's it. You got it in a nutshell. Is this now... This is still based on property taxes, but also income taxes. Is that correct? So so let me address that too. So, and they do this right now. A district through the local auditor knows how much their property valuation is. That's all public record. Right. But now by blending this income with it, 60% of a district's potential wealth is still based on property. And I'm going to come back to that, why that figure is important. The 40% is based on income wealth. And we determine that by taking the FAGI, Federal Adjusted Gross Income, the three-year average of that district and taking the lowest average, whatever that might be of those three years. And then that figure, you divide it by the number of students in your district to determine the per-pupil potential of the the average of the district's income. But now there's another check on this, which makes it even more fair. We also then take the median of that district's FAGI of the last year 
available. And here's why that happens. In very small, like a rural district, a, a property owner could win the lottery or could sell a business and skew the average higher than it really ought to be. So by taking the median of all the federal tax returns of the FAGI in that district, we can flatten that out so there, it doesn't vary so much. So overall, 60% property, 20% of the average FAGI, and 20% of the median FAGI, now we have a true picture of what that uh, local district's total local capacity is. Now, why 60-40? Because in Ohio, we have more income wealth than we do property wealth. Think of it two pizzas side by side, and we're going to divide them up evenly. We would take a little less, that's the 40%, of what is greater and a little bit more, that's the 60%, of what is less to arrive at about a 50-50 split in real terms between property wealth and income wealth. Does that make sense? I, I think it does. Does this then eliminate the idea of them going to the voters for levies, though, since there's this formula? No. And, and the voters have to understand this. According to the Ohio Constitution, it's a shared partnership. Mm -hmm. The state has an obligation. The local district has an obligation. But what has happened, because the state hasn't fulfilled its obligation, the locals have been forced to bear more of the brunt for funding education. So by mm -hmm. coming up, and the key is, you only have a base cost that you can predict and how much it's going to cost per student, and we know exactly how much a local district can pay, then it's simple. The state just pays the rest. Now, what if you have a wealthier district, um, at least per the population, you know, there's a wealthier suburb, and they're obviously now potentially getting less state funding because the formula indicates that they can afford more. What would stop them from simply going for more and more levies? And then if those levies fail because they are not meeting that state, that formula to, to for what they can afford. All right. Now you're getting into a whole nother can of worms here. <laughs> Currently, let me try to explain this. Currently, of the 600 and some districts, there are only 100 and so on the formula. Most are either what's called on the guarantee, which means they get the same amount. You're, you wouldn't want to pull the rug underneath of them. Okay. All right. Or what's called the gain cap, which means even though they're growing because there's only a pot of money, if we're keeping... Uh, 300 and some districts on the guarantee, even while others are growing, the others that are growing aren't going to get what they really ought to be. And uh, let me give you an example. There are some very large districts. Columbus City is a good example that are on the gain cap for nearly uh, $100 million, which means that every year they're not getting that money because that money is going elsewhere. So when this formula is fully instituted, the gain cap, because there, this is going to cost $1.9 more when it's fully instituted than what we're paying now, mm -hmm. the gain cap goes away and we have just a handful of districts on the guarantee. So once we know, and by the way, when we average the, the, the base cost for those kids, we're using average teacher salary statewide. So if a district wants to pay their teachers more 
for whatever reason, because the cost of living is higher or because they want the, to attract the, the very best, however they do that, then those districts are, are going to have to pay for that extra on their own. But that's their choice to make. And that's what sure. local control is all about. If we really value local control, then local boards and the citizens of those districts ought to make those decisions and not to stay. Now, I've read that there. this seems to be sort of almost a do or die moment, that we've been coming up to this point, working on this plan for years, and that there appears to be an appetite maybe right now to get right it now. passed. Why is that? What is the sense that it could pass by the end of the year as opposed to not before now or not after the end of the year? Well, we've been working on this for three years now as a large group. And we've had superintendents and treasurers from around the state. And I would suggest locally, uh, you could contact Terry Armstrong, A.J. Calderon, a uh, number of local mm -hmm. folks that can give you their perspective. But before that, I've been working on this for nearly, well, for my um, four of my terms down here, almost eight years, because as a retired teacher, I saw what was happening. And as the state was cutting its funds, because the state has to run a balanced budget and the locals do too, all right? Mm -hmm. Those courses, those programs that were not being tested, not part of that core, were being cut. Things like art, music, and gym in the elementary. Things like consumer science, what we would have called years ago home ec classes, uh, engineering drawing, uh, vo vocational agriculture. Those things were getting cut out. And as a result, uh, the educational cornucopia, if you will, those extra courses that students gravitate towards that enhance their overall uh, educational portfolio were being cut out and, and, and students were forced in this tiny realm of those courses that were tested. Well, the problem with that is that some students may not be good in English or math, but they may excel in vocational agriculture. They may excel at Model United Nations. They may excel at uh, some of the other extracurriculars that weren't being offered that could be incorporated into the into a course schedule. And when I say Model UN, I at Jefferson, and we used to attend the Youngstown State University uh, Model UN conference, I turned that into a class for my students. And as a result, the minority leader here in the Ohio House is one of my students, a Model UN uh, alum. I've got them everywhere uh, that have gone through that enrichment program because it changed their life. And that's my point, that Students ought to be able to dabble with these different options to match their gifts with their passion, if you will, <laughs> to discover their purpose in life. And then you have more uh, the students who are coming out that are better employees, they're more engaged in the system, and they feel better about what they're doing as human beings. Now, I've not worked a day in my life. I'm going to give you an example. Because for 29 years, I never went to work, right? Mm -hmm. I went to school. For the last eight years, I go to Columbus, but I don't go to work. When we think of work, we think of mundane work that, that, that people don't always appreciate. But when you go to a place, when you're serving others, when you're making a difference in the lives of others, that's not work. That's purpose. 
And by eliminating some of these ancillary courses, we've limited the scope of what students might find appealing to find their calling in life. So this is about the whole student is my point. We need to educate the whole student for the, for the purposes of their betterment. Does that make sense? It, it does. But, but what I want to get back to is why this is the sweet spot as to why you oh, think okay. this could yeah, pass yeah. now. Sorry, you got, you got me <laughs> pontificating there. No, no, I appreciate that. About. All right. So why now? So I've been working on this eight years, formerly three years with those folks. We don't have a formula now. Mm-hmm. And we've been stuck on this 60-20 for three years. And then the governor was forced to cut $300 million in the last year. Right. And we're looking at that as well. There, let me be f- perfectly frank. There's no funding for this formula right now. Be, well, there is, but it can't be fully funded because we don't have the money. But this provides a roadmap. Now, why now? Why this p- precise time? Because I am term limited. My joint sponsor is term limited. One of the Senate joint sponsors is term limited. And we've built to this point where we've had the hearings in the House. We've had eight hearings in the House. The first hearing in the Senate took place yesterday. It's building to a crescendo because we have no path forward. It's going to be a mess, the budget, with less money and with COVID-related pressures on the budget. It is now or never to get this to get this implemented. So even though it might cost another an additional two billion dollars at a time that 1. like one point nine, one point nine, okay, <laughs> an additional one point nine billion dollars at yeah. a time where, as you said, we're we're actually cutting from education right now due to the pandemic. Right. You're saying that that actually creates the sweet spot because the situation is untenable, and while this wouldn't be funded, there'd be a roadmap forward to then work towards, even though it may take a significant amount of time to fully implement. Is that it? That's correct. Without the COVID, the natural growth in our economy was going to be able to pay for this. There wouldn't have been, and we're not suggesting any taxation changes. Mm -hmm. The natural growth would have covered this. Our feeling is with a six-year phase in that with a vaccine coming soon, and life getting back to normal, whatever that is, over right. the next few months, that the economy will recover and the growth will continue. Then over a six-year period, we can be where we need to be. But without a roadmap and without people here in the legislature to be able to offer that advice and guidance, we'll be left wandering in the wilderness for a few more years. And we can't afford that. What is your sense of the membership? Is it? I know there's bipartisan support for this, but is it wide enough that you that you see this passing by the end of the year? And if it doesn't, is it dead in the water? Or you start? I mean, obviously, so many of the people you just mentioned are term limited out. Is anybody going to pick this mantle back up if it doesn't pass? That's the problem, and that's the concern. Right now, my original joint sponsor was Speaker, or excuse me, Representative Cup, who is now Speaker Cup. Right. He would like to get this done. That helps tremendously. There were we were on as the joint sponsors at two. That's two. And we had 66 co-sponsors in the House out of a membership of 99. That's over mm-hmm. two thirds supported sure. this out of the box. The Senate version, 376, has currently 17 out of 33 as either joint or co-sponsors. That's impressive out of the box. So the appetite is there, 
And because of all the work we've done, as questions come up, we have answers for them. So it's logical, it's defensible, it's necessary, and the timing is right because if it doesn't make it across the finish line now, whoever is left is going to have to pick it up and start all over again. Sure. To your knowledge, is the governor supportive if it passes? Will we it have been in, in touch. Now, the governor has something else on his mind these days. Sure. <laughs> a little bit called COVID. So we have we've had glancing conversations, if you will, with him personally. He knows this. But we have had multiple intimate conversations with his staff. They are well aware. We've incorporated them into our efforts here. And I think they're waiting to see what the legislature does. But uh, they've been, we've been working hand in hand with them as well. No surprises. Well, I thank you very much for your time. This is a complicated subject, but I think we uh, did as best as we could to boil it we down. We did. So and I we didn't understandable. Even, <laughs> well, we didn't even get into the add-ons like special ed or gifted or transportation. All of those are on top of what we talked about that are factored in here. Career tech educational service centers. I mean, this is a monster of a, uh, of a bill with so complex that uh, it adds to the intrigue, if you will. Absolutely. But thank you well, thank for your time.